0: Forever. Dog. and I remember really really wanting it and really really wanting that audition and I was fighting to get just to get in that room and then I went in and I just I just I mean it was just terrible
1: Welcome to Household Faces, the podcast where a character actor interviews other character actors. I'm your host, John Ross Bowie. You might know me from Speechless, The Big Bang Theory, or that one episode of the UPN drama Kevin Hill, where I sue a dating service because they couldn't find anyone for me. That was a long, depressing week in Toronto. Our guest this episode is Spencer Garrett. Now, you know Spencer from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, from Bosch, from Bombshell, from a very pivotal fan favorite episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. And we talk about all that. And we also talk about letting the wardrobe do the work for you. And there are some great stories about his mom, who is president of the Screen Actors Guild for a while. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Spencer Garrett. I didn't expect to start this way, but as long as it's coming up organically, uh, yeah. y- there is a tendency for you to be in these gargantuan casts filled with just incredible heavy hitters, not just like, not just movie stars, but, but these incredible just journeyman actors. I, I was, I've been watching, I've been doing my homework. I was watching a little Bosch this morning, took in a little of season three of Bosch this morning, and that cast is Amy Aquino and Lance Reddick and John Ailes and, and you. And, and yeah. it's just these these hard hitter working actors that are are so fun. Is that um? do you find yourself overlapping with people a lot? Do you run into the same people again or is it just a constant? I extreme- run into this.
0: Not only do I run into the same people again and I love running into the same people again. Um, I think that's the third time that I've played John Ailes's. Uh, defense lawyer. My God. In, in, it's like the third time I've played Johnny's lawyer uh, and I've never been able to uh, win a case because uh, he o- he always plays these terrible characters. Um, but John and I have worked together a lot. I mean, that's that's all credit due to uh, that's Laura Schiff and Carrie Audino, the two casting directors who I'm sure you've run across over the years, you know, who who put together the cast of Mad Men. They cast me in, uh, Aquarius a couple of years ago, which to, to, to date is the, I think the best role I've ever had. They just have such a great eye for actors. And I remember when I got turned on to Bosch, I mean, Titus is one of my oldest pals and I remember watching it from season one and, and marveling at not only how many great character actors and, you know, and, and heavy hitters that they get, but also how many people that I didn't recognize throughout the seasons Um, same with Mad Men as well. I'd go, wow, what a wonderful actor coming in to do, you know, you know, would you like fries with that? You know, that, that line, you know, can I show you that in a loafer or a pump? And you go, wow, what a terrific actor. I've never seen that person before. They just have such a great eye and they did it with Aquarius. They did it with Mad Men. But particularly on Bosch, I remember seeing actors that I'd never seen before and and going, wow, they just find these actors that they just love that maybe they've had, you know, in their in their memory banks and they bring them in and, um, you know, and give them a give them a chance uh, at the plate. And it's you know, it's uh, I give them I give those ladies a lot of credit. Uh, because they're just they're just fantastic and Bosch was like that from beginning to end. and they bring me back um, which was really nice. I mean, Titus and Michael Connolly said, you know we're bringing back some of our favorites from you know from seasons past. So uh, so I got another you know I got another at bat uh, for a few episodes uh, and and Titus and I, we've known each other 30 years and we've never uh, we've never worked together. We've never had a chance to, uh to be on stage or on screen with each other so i said if i come back you know you got to make sure that we have a a really nice scene together so uh so we have some good stuff and season 7 is just bananas it's such an interesting role because it's not the conventional
1: sleazy lawyer he's not an ambulance chaser he's yeah. he's a he's a he's a very high end sleazy lawyer um yeah. and and how do you approach something how do you approach playing someone who's really one of the bad guys by pretty much any definition. How do you how do you approach that without it turning into just this sort of like mustache twirling villain? I,
0: I've I've played. I mean, there was a period in my career where it was all I was getting. I was sort of I sort of was like in, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, when I was just getting started, I sort of became the go to prick in a suit. Um And I and it it was like I I call it I refer to it now as my pantheon of pricks and suits. I must have played maybe, I don't know, 50, 50 high end, expensive lawyers. And after a while, I started to get started to get a little frustrated. I was like, well, how how do you throw a new color on this? How do you add something new to this? That's my question. How do you like in the case of Bosch? I think um, just don't I didn't judge the guy. I mean, uh, they let me they gave me license to 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 play with it and sort of make it my own. But it's also a Michael Connelly creation that came out of the books. Um, his name is J. Reason Folks, F-O-W-W-K-E-S. One of the greatest names in the history of literature. Um, and I just thought I just took the essence of that name. And I thought, how would a J. Reason Folks carry himself? Um, and it was just, you know, and I love, I love, uh, I love working with the costume designer. I love working with the clothes. So it comes down to sort of the, the clothes and the tie and the pocket square. And there's certain elements that you throw on top of each other that just sort of lend itself to who this guy is. And all of a sudden, once you're kind of in the, the armor, uh, that you put on it, it lends, you know, it, it, the, the essence of the guy, you know, is sort of created there. Um, And I've never tried to twirl that mustache because that's just a, that's just a tip, you know, that's just a tell from the get go. So, I mean, folks is just so deliciously, uh, just so deliciously snarky. And there was sort of an effete character about him that I loved that I found in the very beginning and season three. And then I had to go kind of remember what I did five years ago when we came back and shot it, you know, uh, last summer that uh kind of bring back that essence and uh you know it's it's just it's fun to it was fun to come back and sort of add new shadings to it you know down the road um but you never you never want to twirl the mustache too much i have the i have the phrase pocket square
1: written down here cuz i i noticed the the uh, <laughs> uh was that your choice or did wardrobe throw that
0: at you uh, that's me I, nice. I, I love i love a po- i love a pocket square it says something
1: It 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 really, it It really says something about, about the presentational quality of this guy.
0: Yeah. That he's not just an attorney, he is a Hollywood attorney. He's a Hollywood attorney. I mean, you remember Johnny Cochran? Sure. Who had the, you know, he had the matching pocket square with the tie that sort of, it was the same fabric that sort of matched. Um, It's just that high dollar guy who's really more about the, the theater of it and the presentation of it, then, you know, I mean, that that sort of lends itself to creating the substance of the guy. And I, I remember years and years ago on Sports Night, on Aaron Sorkin's Sports Night, it was probably... Uh, I don't know, mid '90s or something. I was trying to, I was trying to bring back the bow tie, Spencer. Uh, me, I was trying to bring back the the bow tie. Uh, Tucker Carlson ruined it for all of us, yeah. Uh, eventually, but I was, I w- loved wearing a bow tie, and so I went to my audition with Aaron, and I was wearing a bow tie. And I remember going into the room and seeing all the all the dudes, all the usual suspects, and nobody was wearing a bow tie, and I thought. Oh this is good. Maybe this is a good choice. And I walked in and and Aaron would always read with you when you would audition back then and he said love the bow tie and I got the gig and I remember thinking I wonder if that's what got me the job and they let me wear the bow tie on the show and for a couple of shows there was like Sports Night Murder She Wrote there was a couple of things where I sort of started wearing the bow tie and I thought I'm going to be the guy that brings the bow tie back into the Zeitgeist um and it and it and it added something to me. It you know it 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 added something to the characters. So I love I love the idea of creating the guy from the outside in. So for me, clothes really add so much to it.
1: It's it's great when you can sort of let uh, wardrobe do some of the lifting for you and let it kind of inform oh, yeah. like like oh who is the guy who decides that this is how this is the face he's putting to the world
0: when you go when you go to do like a just a guest spot just a one off. As you know, I mean, you don't really always have the luxury of being able to collaborate. You know, they get you, you know, they call you, they give you, you know, you get your, your sizes from you and you go in and they throw the clothes on you and you're on set the next day. There's not a lot of collaboration, but with something that's like a recurring role or something that, you know, that you're going to be building down, you know, down the road. Uh, and and the wardrobe department, you know, gives you a little bit of agency to create the guy. Uh, that's when it's really fun, when you can kind of work with uh, the costume folks to, you know, to to figure out who the guy is. But you don't always get that luxury. You don't, but
1: it's sort of a shortcut to um, when you're doing a a short term, like top of show, one day gig or something to come in and be like, Okay, I don't have a lot to go on here. I have a couple pages of dialogue. Uh, what does it say that this guy is still wearing turtlenecks in the 21st century? You know, you kind of have to just run with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, since you mentioned Tucker Carlson, let's segue gracefully over to Bombshell um, from just a couple years ago, where you played Sean Hannity. Yeah. Um, and in in the movie about um, the sexual harassment cases at at Fox News. Now, I I actually don't. As, as much as I'm mouthy on social media, I don't bring a lot of politics into this show. I will briefly acknowledge that I am a pretty mainstream Hollywood lefty. Um, but there has to be a point where even if you're not a fan of Sean Hannity, you still want to do him justice.
0: Yeah. I mean, you want to do him justice. But uh, again, that's a guy. I mean, I've I've, I've seemed to have uh, fallen into this thing over the years where I've I've gotten, I mean, I played Joe McCarthy a couple of years ago. I played Tom DeLay. God, that's right. You did. You know, guys who are not, they're, you know, morally bankrupt guys, bad guys. Sean Hannity, I mean, uh, uh, sorry, sorry to my cousins in Illinois who, who uh, thinks that, you know, he, he raises the dead. Uh, You know, I mean, it's, it's hard not to, it's hard to leave your judgment aside when you're playing somebody like that. So in the case of Hannity, I just, I just decided to play him as him. There's not too much spin on the ball. You can really do. I really wanted to, I wanted to do him justice. I, uh, he's already in my mind, a cartoon character, you know, I mean, the way just the hair and all of that. So I wanted to make sure that we got that silly 1920s barbershop quartet hairdo situation that he has going on. Um, you know, and the way he talks and all of that. And, you know, and I just, I wanted to, I wanted to play him as him because you can't, you can't put too much mustard on it when he's already a a parody of himself. So, so in that case, I, I was, uh, I was delighted that, that Jay Roach, who I, I adore and I worked with a few times, um, you know, he said, do whatever you want. But at the, at the end of the day, I, you know, he basically said, uh, you know, give me give me your version of Hannity, but but my version of Hannity was uh couldn't get any better than the real thing. So I just I just played him as him.
1: You do a lot of roles where you're you do a ton of period pieces, which we can talk about, yeah. but you also do a ton of period pieces where you are playing a journalist or a host or a presenter. Um yeah. and, and it's an interesting um uh, oeuvre that you've carved out for yourself as, you know, uh, uh, vintage news guy. Um, yeah. And so there's sort of an extra layer of performance in that because you're playing somebody from the 1960s who is portraying something on television, even though he's, you know, mm-hmm. Alan Kincaid is himself, Roger Stone is himself, but there's still like, there has to be a certain extra layer of performance because the news was very, had a certain showmanship back then. It still does, obviously. But are you cognizant of that or am I just putting you in your head?
0: (laughs) No, no, I, I, you're, you're absolutely right. And it's, it's interesting that I've, I've sort of, uh, um, I've gotten, I've gotten those kinds of roles uh, even in um, uh, For All Mankind last year. I mean, I played, I played Roger Mudd. uh, Roger Mudd, uh, sorry, sorry. Uh, well, no, I mean, it was a, he, they didn't call him Roger Mudd. I think they called him Roger Scott, but it was a uh, it was a basically it was Roger Mudd. I mean, without, you know, there was a woman who played Barbara Walters, um, but uh, I played Bob Woodward in uh, in the, the front runner, uh the Alan Kincaid character. I mean, it's interesting that, yeah, I get you know, I get these kind of these these guys that are that are period guys. And maybe it's uh, partly because of my voice, um, but. I've always felt like I've had that essence of a guy that was sort of born in the wrong era. Like if I was, if I, if I had come up in the 1940s and fifties, I would have, I would have gotten cast back then as a newscaster or uh, a reporter in, 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 in public enemies thing I did years ago for Michael Mann, you know, about John Dillinger. And uh, every time someone was driving the car, uh, in the film when the radio was on and you heard, you heard the, uh, you know, today in the news, uh, you know, world war two is raging in the, you know, like that. Michael's Michael said, give me that voice. So I think it's just always lived in me. I mean, I think those guys have always just sort of lived inside me. And, um, my uncle was an actor, a wonderful actor named Christopher Bone. And he, uh, he did, uh, I sort of modeled that Alan Kincaid character, After him, if you look, if you YouTube him, you know, characters that he played, um, he did like the old gold cigarettes commercials and he sounded like this. And he had this wonderful voice back when every announcer back then sounded like that. And he had that vibe. And so I always kind of like take that essence of of my uncle and sort of infuse it into these different characters.
1: We're going to talk about your family and, and your origin story in a moment um, because it's it's fascinating. I knew you were a second generation actor. I did not realize you were a third generation actor. We're going to come to that. Yeah. But yeah. first, I want to stop off at Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, you're basically the I think you're the first voice we hear in the film interviewing Brad and Leo. Um, another one yeah. of your, another one of your specialties is setting up pages of exposition for the audience. Um, yeah. <laughs> they really, they know when to like, we, we need, we need someone who's going to make it really clear what everyone does. Get me Spencer. Um, you, you have this wonderful little exchange with them where you're playing sort of, uh, uh, the 1960s equivalent of an entertainment tonight host, Alan
0: Kincaid. Yeah. You know, it was actually, uh, uh, Quentin, Quentin wanted to call him, uh Wink Martindale they wanted to name him Wink Martindale cuz Wink Martindale for those of you out there who don't know you know the the, ga- the the game show host the the game show host of the you know late 60s 70s but before that he was a celebrity interviewer you know he was he was doing what uh, you know Regis Philbin did back in the day um so i, I i'm not sure what happened why they couldn't clear it um, but he was originally supposed to be Wink Martindale.
1: Oh, no kidding. That's interesting. Um,
0: yeah.
1: You told me a story off mic one time, and I'm going to pimp you into telling it now, about you yeah. trying to put a shout out to your mom in the film. Your mom is the actress Kathleen Nolan, uh, did The Real yeah. McCoys um, with Richard Crenna and Walter Brennan back in the day, um, and you tried to include a, an homage to her.
0: I did. Uh, I When we were done shooting the scene with, with uh, Brad and Leo, uh, Quinton said, there needs more here. There needs a button. Something needs to be, uh, added onto this. Can you come up with something? And I said, sure. He said, take it, take a couple of minutes and, you know, come up with a tag, come up with a button for the end of the scene that will take us into, you know, I didn't realize it was the beginning of the movie. I had no idea where I didn't know that this, I hadn't read the script. Uh, I was offered a chance to read the script if I wanted to sit in a locked room, sign an NDA and, you know, under penalty of death, not tell anybody about it. And I chose not to. And so when I did the scene with those guys, I didn't know where that uh, scene fit into the larger context of the movie. I had no idea it opened the movie until I actually ran into DiCaprio about a week before the trailer dropped and and he said, hey, I just saw, I ran into him at a restaurant and he said, hey, I just saw the trailer. It's fantastic. You're all over it. And I said, oh, that's great. He's like, no, no, you, you are the trailer. Um, and he said, you opened the movie. And I and I had no I had no idea, but which was terrific. And while we were shooting the scene, Quentin said, we need something more. We need something at the end. And I said, um, do you know who my mom is? is and he said well, of course I do he knew he knew everything about me I'm he Quentin Tarantino you know, this is my job he yeah. knew <laughs> that I played third fbi agent from the left you know uh, you know on law and order you know in 1990 i mean he knew everything about me he said yeah your mom was kate of the rob McCoys. and i said well let me do a little little homage to to her let me try this And I said, join us next week on the set of The Real McCoys, where I interview that beautiful and talented redhead, Kathy Nolan. This is Alan Kincaid signing off from Hollywood. And he said, oh my God, that's fucking great. He said, give me two more. Give me two more people. So I said, I gave him like Phil Silvers. And then I said, um, he said, uh, it needs a K. It needs Ks. Uh, Do Maury Amsterdam and Rosemary, those comical cut-ups, Rosemary and more, you know, and so we ended up doing, so I did my mom, Phil Silvers, and join us next week with those comical cut-ups, Maury Amsterdam and Rosemarie, and, and I thought, well, gosh, I hope he uses my mom, because um, that would be lovely, and then uh, went right at the premiere, as we were walking in, he pulled me aside, and he said, I had to use, I had to use Maury Amsterdam and Rosemary because the comical cut-ups just just made it. It was just it would that that was just that just sort of like made the scene click. Um, He said, all apologies to your mother. And then they eventually met and he was so sweet to her and it was lovely. But, um, you know, I I I was I was bummed that they didn't use the thing to my mom because I thought that would have been lovely. But, you know, uh, I when Quentin Tarantino lets you fly like that. Uh, and gave me license to just sort of have fun. Uh, that was, you know, that was enough of a gift. So I, t- when I told my mom that he let me do that, she just thought that was lovely. So, too bad it didn't make it in the movie, but it's okay. It's, uh,
1: I mean, not just let you fly, but let you fly in his like specific TV geeky world, and let totally. you kind of totally you know, show off, show off your, your trivia uh, stuff as well. The, um, yeah. So let, yeah. let's talk about, um, let's talk about your mom for a moment. What I normally ask my guests is. Was there a moment when you realized you could do this for a living? I am not going to ask you that because you grew up surrounded by the business. you got your mother's an actor. Your father's a manager. Was your father your mother's
0: manager? He was a talent agent when they met. Or he was a talent agent first uh, at MCA, at the old MCA. Wow. Uh, And then uh, briefly was a manager. And I think he was a manager when they met. Um, It was a sort of a classic Hollywood romance. They met at a party. They got married two weeks later, and I think they got divorced within a year. So it didn't really take the marriage didn't take hold, Um, but they stayed friends and I'm I'm an only child. Um, but he was, uh, he was either an agent or a manager, mostly an agent for about 50 years. He had his own little boutique agency. He represented, um, a lot of English clients. He had Oliver Reed and Donald Pleasance and Timothy Dalton, and Vanessa Redgrave. He had wonderful, uh, Henry Silva. He had all these great, great, you know, character people and a lot of, a lot of great British stars. He was sort of the, the, the West coast arm of a London based agency. Um, so he had some terrific actors and, um, uh, yeah. And, you know, and mom, uh, grew up on a showboat on the Mississippi river called the golden rod in St. Louis. And my grandparents ran a theater on the showboat and people would get onto the showboat and they would go and they would put on a play and then the play would be over. And then the boat would roll down the Mississippi onto the next town, Joplin, Hannibal, St. Joe, and people would come on and they'd put on a play. I mean, my mom was, you know, two, four, six years old at the time. So before she ran off to New York, um, but, uh, yeah, my, my grandma and grandpa were both actors, my mom and her sister, my aunt was also an actor. So, um, yeah, I, I was unavoidable. I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't escape it really.
1: Well, let me flip the question on its end then. Were there a moment, yeah. was there, do you remember a moment when you realized that not all parents did this for a living, that some people had parents who were bankers or?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I knew it was, it was unusual. I mean, be, w- when I was, When I was a kid, I remember, you know, I'd come home from school and I'd walk into my living room and there'd be Cesar Romero or Jack Lemmon or, you know, Ed Asner or whatever. I mean, she was president. She was president of of SAG at the time. So that was my frame of reference was, oh, most of the people that my mom knows are actors. Most of the people my dad knew were actors or they were in the business. Um, And. I just remember thinking uh, my parents know the most interesting people on the planet. They were fascinating. They're crazy. Um, And I think part of the reason I, you know, I didn't jump into this uh, full bore right away is because I'd seen, you know, I knew what a crazy life it was. And so there was a, there was a part of me that kind of thought when I grow up, I'm going to get a real job and, you know, carry a briefcase and wear a suit and, you know, do I have a nine to five thing where I don't have to worry about, you know, if, uh, you know, if 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 the uh, the banker is going to come knocking on the door, you know. Did you, in fact, do that? Did you hold down
1: some some day jobs before you threw yourself? Under, I, I held into down
0: some day jobs. I mean, for for a brief time I worked uh, when I got out of college, I worked in, in D.C. I worked I worked for NPR. I worked at NPR for three years. I worked at the Corporation for Public Broadcasting for two years and I worked at NPR for three years. And while I was living in D.C., I started doing theater there. And that's kind of when I got the I'd always had the bug. But when I was in D.C. and started working in theater there, that's when I thought, oh, maybe I'm kind of good at this or maybe I will eventually be good at this. Um and maybe I should give it a shot. I mean, I was I was in at college in North Carolina. I was doing the plays and the musicals and all that What plays. What, I, did I always I always ask my
1: guests, what plays and musicals did you do in college? Shocked me. I did.
0: Uh, I did Equus. Um, what did you do in Equus? I did. I did not. I, I didn't. I didn't nude up in Equus. I was a horse in Equus. Nice. great. I was good. one of the horses. Um, but the uh, the the owner of the stable in that production of Equus was Jared Harris. Oh, my God. Uh, one of the, you know, extraordinary actor, one of my dear friends um, another, and another uh, Mad Men you know, alum, another Mad Men alum. And, and but Jared was even then, as a 18 year old kid doing theater and really, uh, really green and really not having any idea what I was doing uh, in this extraordinary piece of theater that was directed by a, a wonderful director. Um and watching Jared and thinking, I mean, this guy was on another level. I mean, just maybe just via his genetics from his father. I mean, you know, Richard Harris, was, is of course, of Richard greatest. Harris, great Irish actor, right. played uh, King Arthur in Camelot. Yeah. And I remember I remember watching Jared and going, wow, I want some of that. I want to be that good. Um, and I mean, you know, Jared was, I think, two years older than me at the time. And he already had that that thing. He had that you know, that ineluctable quality that, you know, you, you know, we all want. And, um, so I, I, you know, watching Jared and doing plays, I did, I did West Side Story. I did Galileo. Uh, I did, you know, from the sublime to the ridiculous. I mean, we, I did a lot of stuff, but, um, played, you know, played riff in West Side Story. And, uh, the first thing I ever did was a, uh, a musical that was called Carbonated Rainbow. And I played a dog. I played, I played, I played it. It was, you've never heard of it. It was written, it was an original musical. And, uh, and I played a dog in it. I played a character called Spencer the dog. And I remember like crawling around on the stage on all fours and trying to act like a dog. And that was the first thing that I did at, at Duke. And, and I remember thinking how bizarre this all was and how, how wonderful it was. And I just wanted to, I wanted to keep, keep exploring and playing and doing silly stuff like this
1: so you go to New York um, were there things that that growing up and watching your mom navigate the business and watching mm-hmm you know, Walter Brennan, Richard Crenna, all the kind of colleagues she had. If you're out of college, that means your mom has been SAG president, is no longer SAG president. On my dates right there? Correct. And yeah. so, therefore, you've seen her, like, just run the entire gauntlet of show business jobs. Are there things you learned yeah. from her that you felt gave you an edge when it was time for you to pursue your career? I mean, not just in terms of craft, but in terms of, like, the business of it.
0: I mean, it was... It was a tricky time because she was a, a woman in the 70s running against six men when she was running for president of SAG. So, you know, constantly, you know, battling the, the patriarchy. Uh, and she she won both times and became very uh, prominent and very powerful. It was unheard of that you had a, you know, a woman becoming president of the of the of the guild. She was the first woman president of a labor union ever. Oh my God, I don't um, think I
1: realized that. That's incredible.
0: Yeah, which is pretty cool. Uh, but it also hurt her. It hurt her career uh, because she was pushing back against the studio executives. I mean, she was she was advocating for, uh, for minorities and for stunt women and pushing back against the studio system. Uh, not the studio system, because that was long gone, but she was pushing against the studio heads, the Fred Silvermans and the Brendan Tartikoffs and people like that. She was making a lot of noise. She was pretty mouthy about her, about the things that she wanted on behalf of, you know, the rank and file membership of, of, of SAG. So uh, she rubbed people the wrong way a lot. Um, and as a woman, you know, that was not her place to do that. And so it hurt her career. Um, I mean, she'd be the first to admit it. I mean, it, it really, the, the jobs started to dry up I noticed, you know, and she worked less and less because she was, you know, she was pissing a lot of the, the powers that be that were in charge of giving her the acting jobs that she needed to pay the rent and the mortgage uh, that started that started to dry up. So that was something that I noticed, uh, you know, as a as a as a kid, I noticed that, you know, she was she was opening her mouth and uh, and people were pushing back and she was very controversial. So it was a, it was a difficult time.
1: That's really interesting. That's yeah. wow. Um, you, you, you get in there and you, you, you start to really commit to this. And, um, in a few years, would you say that, that, that Star Trek next generation gig was, was sort of a turning point. That feels like one, an early big role for you.
0: It was probably my first, uh, substantial guest role on a show. I mean, I, I I had done a couple of things before that I think like a 21 Jump Street that was a pretty good sized role but uh the the Star Trek the Star Trek thing was I don't know if it was a turning point but it was maybe a jumping off point it was it was my first kind of meaty role on a show again and I I had no I was not a Star Trek fan necessarily I was not not a Star Trek fan I just had no understanding of of the lore and the fandom. Tell us about
1: your character real
0: quick. You are a, uh, oh, there's, played, there's some controversy was
1: a, about your race. That's one of the big things, right?
0: Yes. Yeah. And it was, the, it was a beautifully written episode. It was, uh, uh, it was sort of an, uh, a, a metaphor for the AIDS crisis that was still, you know, kind of raging back then. So I was a God, the Trek fans are going to destroy me if they hear this. Cause I don't, <laughs> I, I don't know if it's, Let's get enough. it right. But let's, I was let's get a, it right. <laughs> I was a quarter Romulan, I believe. I think I was I a quarter Romulan. Correct. Yeah, quarter Romulan with some Vulcan blood, Uh, and I and somebody tried to blow up the ship, and they found out that I had a quarter Romulan blood in me, and I was put on trial uh, because of my because of the the tainted blood that I had that I had brought to the ship. And you know, um, I had not.
1: I had looked at it. At the, the episode is called
0: Drumhead. It's from
1: season yeah. three or four yeah. of, of Next Generation. It really is an iconic. Are you a, are you a Trek fan? I'm a casual. I'm a I'm a, I'm a casual Trek fan. Yeah. I'm not. Uh, yeah. uh, I don't speak Klingon. Um, but I've, as I've gotten older, <laughs> I've I've recognized how much smart storytelling was on the show that kind of eluded me when I was a kid. Very much so. Yeah. So I've, I've gotten more into it. And it's funny because you don't have like next generation is particularly interesting because you don't have the captain fighting a guy in a rubber suit. You have a lot of guys sitting around a conference table discussing, you know, political philosophy yeah. for an hour. And that yeah. isn't to everybody's taste, but I love it. I think yeah. it's really, really yeah. interesting.
0: I, I don't think I realized how smart it really was. And also because this, this was pre internet. This is 91, 92, somewhere around there. Um, I had no, I had no way to, uh, there was no, you know, YouTube rabbit hole that I could go down and look back at past episodes. My godfather was an actor named Liam Sullivan, and he had been on an episode on the original series called Plato's Stepchildren. If you ever watch the original series, I think it's I the that one, one. Yeah. So one with Michael Dunn, the 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 uh, the little person, the dwarf who, uh, you know, and and he and he my godfather played this character who, you know, he moves Kirk around on a chessboard, right. um, with his mind. Um, right, and, and he gave me, I had a VHS copy of the show and I, you know, and I watched this to try to understand what it was I was getting myself into. And so when I showed up on the set, I had no idea what a Romulan was supposed to act like. And to his credit, Jonathan Frakes, wonderful, wonderful director who was on the show and also directing this episode, uh, and he and I have formed a wonderful partnership ever since then. He's directed me in, in several things, but it was really one of my first things. And I was, I feel like I was very much out of my depth. I really did not know which way to go with this guy. And he really guided me. And of course, I'm in, I'm in scenes with Patrick Stewart, who is you know iconic. Um, and I grew up watching, uh, there was a great series on PBS when I was a kid called Acting Shakespeare. With oh, John yes, Bartley. I've seen that. Right, you know, so and if Acting you go back Shakespeare, see like,
1: and you can find it on YouTube. Actually, Acting you Shakespeare can find it on has YouTube a bunch of great yeah. people. There's young Patrick Stewart, young Ian McKellen is on it, and Helen each, Mirren. Helen Mirren yeah. shows up. Somebody yeah. else, yeah. I'm I i can not remember. There's a few. this giants. I think Judy Dench. Possibly, I think you're right. Uh, I think yeah. you're right. And every every week they take a particular aspect of of, of Shakespeare's writing and and they yeah. do scenes and they pick it up. It's so geeky. It's I recommend it to. It's so geeky. Everybody. It's
0: fabulous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you would watch that up. Oh, sure. God. I watched that on PBS growing up. Uh, you know, it was on at odd hours of the night. I mean, that's you know, I was watching Monty Python and Faulty Towers and 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 this acting Shakespeare would come on, and I'd go, "Wow, this is. I mean, this is." These are heavy hitter actors from the RSC, you know, breaking down these scenes. Um, And this is before I even knew that I wanted to be an actor. But I just remember thinking just they were getting into the granularity of, you know, every stanza and the minutiae of the characters and really talking about it. And, you know, with these gorgeous voices and. It was fascinating. It was fascinating to watch. And I remember thinking, you know, that sort of filed in the back of my head, thinking, wow, I wonder if I could do that. And then years later, getting to sit opposite Patrick Stewart, who I had watched on television 25 years earlier uh, and to see, you know, to be with him, who had such presence and such stillness and such. uh, uh, He was so he was so wonderful to me because I think he knew how green I was. And uh, and and he kind of guided me through that stuff. So it was um, it was a great object lesson for me as a young actor, because there were a lot of scenes where they very emotional, very dramatic scenes. And I remember thinking there was a scene where I was on a, you know, on the witness stand and and uh, and I started to cry. And Jonathan caught. He's like a Romulan would never cry. You know, like if you, you wouldn't be that emotional. Um, I was trying to act. I wanted to act, you know, um, and I learned I learned throughout the years how much less is actually more, you know, what a great way to learn that. I mean, you watch Stewart.
1: I mean, especially with all due respect, compare and contrast Stewart with Shatner and you uh, and again, I'm not knocking the original series, um, but there is a quietude. And he realizes that I'm in charge. I don't have to do a goddamn thing. I'm a captain. hundred percent. And he's, he's so good at that. It's so fun to watch. Yeah. And is there a point where you come in to a show like Star Trek? This, I mean, iconic doesn't begin to, to describe that franchise. By that point, there had been films. This was the second television series. There had been cartoons. Yeah. You're hopping onto this moving train. Um, you're terrified, but the good news is your character is really freaked out. Correct. Is there a point where you're just like, fuck it, I'm going to use it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the scene, the scene with Patrick in his quarters, uh, where I really was genuinely nervous, and I used that, and the scene on the witness stand where I am genuinely, I'm genuinely nervous. And I remember being also, uh, when I heard that, when I was cast and I heard that Gene Simmons was going to be in it, I thought, oh, terrific. The guy from Kiss with the tongue. I mean, that's going to be interesting. I wonder what sort of alien he's going to be playing. Wrong. And I walked into the makeup trailer and it's Gene Simmons, you know, from Spartacus and Guys and Dolls. (laughs) But I mean, just, you know, formidable presence. And, you know, this, this iconic British actress who'd been in all of these amazing films, this, this woman who I grew up, you know, coming home from school and flipping on the TV and, you know, and seeing her in a million movies. And she turned to me and introduced herself and, and I was completely enthralled. And she also had a mouth like a sailor. Hilarious. Which was just great. She was this elegant, you know, beautiful British lady who had a mouth like a truck driver. This so is Sarah sort of put from Guys and
1: Dolls <laughs> who works for the Salvation Army. That that this exactly, is, is what yeah. we're talking about. OK, great. That's it. Great. That's it. I, I love that so, she's a potty mouth.
0: Uh, she was terrific. God bless her. She was amazing. So that sort of put me at ease. And but boy, when I was on the stand uh, and she was just laser focused on me and just just killing me with those, you know, with those looks. Uh, I was genuinely intimidated. I mean, so, yeah, I was using all of it. It's so interesting because I've always
1: kind of viewed it as sort of a metaphor for any sort of rush to judgment that that episode. But you're right when you when you talk about the the metaphor for the AIDS crisis and we can't trust this guy because of his tainted blood. And then she is sort of a stand in for the uh, the the religious far right to a certain extent. Where she's just absolutely steadfast in her beliefs and will not be shaken, and yeah. is is you know in the thrall of her 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 dead conservative father, and there's it's there's a lot to unpack there yeah. for
0: 1991. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, for sure. That's so for wild. sure. Um, yeah, it was pretty wild. It was pretty wild. It was a great great thing to be a part of, and uh, and and a lot of those guys. I mean, it was. The relationships that I made with those folks, even just after two weeks of having done that episode with Jonathan, with uh, with LeVar, with Brent Spiner, Michael Dorn. Uh, I mean, to this day, 30 odd years on, uh, there's still a connection, you know, between us. And I've gone to a couple of Star Trek conventions uh, and they're usually some or all of them are usually there. And um, so it's it's really nice. It's a it's a it's a great uh, you know, it was a great jumping off point for me in my career and to have those relationships to this day with something that I didn't understand back then, how important that show was and fans more than anything else, more than anything I've ever done. You know, people will come up to me in airports and say, you were that guy, you know, you were Simon Tarsus, you know, you were that guy in the drumhead and they know the episode and the season and all of that more than any other show. And that's uh, it's very touching. I love, I love that. I love the fact that that, that the show still resonates and the episode still resonates and that even though I felt like if I could go back in a time machine and redo my performance uh, and recalibrate my performance and, uh, and be better uh, you know, it is what it is. Even when I'm flipping around and I see it in a rerun, I go, God damn, if only, uh, if only I had, you know, if only I had said this line with this inflection, whatever, you know, we all do that. But the fact that it's still, uh, that it, it has an impact on people is, uh, is really special to me. You know, that's so cool. The, um, since you've you've mentioned that,
1: like looking back and and the kind of the the sense that you get sometimes, of like, ah, what it could have should have. Um, uh, this is a standard question I ask all of my guests. Is there a role that got away from you that um, doesn't have to be the sort of thing where you're you're you know, it, it you're you're filled with bitterness and resentment. But there is one that's like, oh, that would have been interesting. Is there is there an alternate universe uh, 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 where Spencer
0: Garrett plays blank? You know, I don't think so. I mean, I, I don't. I, I don't know that there is. I mean, I haven't. I haven't always gotten the ones that I've, you know, that I've wanted. I mean, we all have the one that you know that got away. But uh, uh, maybe, uh, maybe ER, maybe Noah Wiley's role on ER. Oh, really? Uh, would have been would have been a nice thing to be a part of. Sure. Uh, reading for reading for Noah Wiley's part, I remember giving a terrible audition for Chandler on Friends. Really? Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, and just really bad, really not funny. And, and I I hadn't, I hadn't really, uh, I'd been doing a lot of drama stuff and rarely, I mean, you know, you look at my resume, it's peppered with some comedy stuff here and there, but You know, back then I was like the drama guy. I was the prick in the suit guy. And so when I went in to read for Chandler, I would, you know, I did, I didn't have my, I didn't have my comedy chops. Um, and, and I remember really, really wanting it and really, really wanting that audition. And I was fighting to get just to get in that room. And then I went in and I just, I just, you know, took a dump. I mean, it was just terrible. Um, So that one, I mean, the Noah Wiley role, everybody, you know, every every young actor, you know, probably they they probably saw 300 guys for that. Um, But I remember thinking this was like I was really kind of in the pocket for that. And that would have been great. There are probably others, but that that would have been, uh, you know, that's one that's one that I really, really would have loved to have had.
1: I asked that question because I think it's nice for for actors to hear. The, the other side of the business and that even people who have worked really steadily for 30 plus years have their moments of like, yeah, that guy one, that one slipped through my fingers. That didn't happen. And I think it's incredibly soothing for young actors uh, and important for young actors to, to hear that. You mentioned something earlier about growing up with, um, with a family in the business. And I say family, because I had no idea how how widespread the Garrett entertainment empire was. Uh, we grew, um, I,
0: I mean, I grew up I grew up in the circus. I grew up in the, you know, it was the <laughs> Ringling
1: Brothers. I grew up in the theater district in New York, um, right uh, right across from the actor's studio, literally on the block wow. of the actor's studio. And I, I think for better or for worse, people like you and I come into this business a, a little more uh, with our expectations, uh, perhaps a dash more grounded. Like, oh, it'd be nice to qualify for insurance. How about I have a job?
0: 100%. The other side of that, John, is, you know, you haven't grown up in New York and you saw the practicality and the impracticality of of what it was that you may have wanted to get into down the line. you know, I moved out here. I moved out here. I did a pilot in 1986 um, with Stephen Weber and Grant Show and. Jace Alexander, Jane Krakowski was an incredible cast of people and brought me out here. And I I had not really made my bones yet in New York. I didn't really uh, I mean, I was doing little things here and there, little off off Broadway things, but very, you know, really not enough. I, I moved out to L.A. before I uh, before I had really gotten my theater chops or my bona fides in in New York. And if I if I have any regrets, it's I wish I'd stayed in New York longer um, and gotten more kind of New York under my skin and gotten more theater, you know, theater chops uh, before I'd come out here. I think it's it's something something that I always like to, you know. And so years later, I would go back and do uh, a play at EST or uh, you, know, I'd, you know, I'd go back, I'd go back. I've done a, I've done a couple of things back there since Ensemble but,
1: Studio Theater, just a few blocks north, just a few blocks north exactly. from where I grew up. Yeah
0: exactly uh in that you know that three floor walk up that you know that dingy little theater that wonderful place that spawned so many you know so many great actors that that came through there so when i years later 20 years after i'd been in la you know grinding away in tv land and i got cast in a play at est uh it was sort of a, a lovely sort of homecoming to to a, a a place that i hadn't really had a chance to explore too much so Uh, Every chance I get to go back to New York and do something, you know, remotely in the theater is uh, is a gift. But that's what that's one. That's one of my that's one of my regrets is I I I came out here. I think I came out here too early um, and I was really kind of an unformed piece of clay. I was it took me a while to figure out how to do this and how to navigate it. And I think if I had stayed in New York for several years, you know, I might have gotten a thicker skin about things because I took a lot of rejection personally when I came out here, you know, when I yeah. read for stuff and, you know, I th- maybe thought I was better than I actually was. Uh, and when I didn't get something, you know, it, it's 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 tough when you're 22 years old and, you know, you want something and you feel like. Uh, but that's the kind of that's the kind of in retrospect, that's the kind of beat up you need. You know, you, you need it, it. It gives you that thicker skin. So I've got it now. God knows <laughs> well your ego is just getting formed and it's getting it's getting kicked around right. so much.
1: Um I wouldn't beat myself up though because if you're working if you're trying to act in the 80s in New York, you've got Broadway. Yeah. Caden Alley and that's it. That's it. There's so little production going on in New York in the 80s. Um everyone is still kind of scared of it. Um uh you know i we'd have i my my friends parents who were actors were were you know putting themselves on sending vhs tapes uh, across the country for for a couple of days on saying elsewhere it was um it wow. was a very very slow time in television yeah. in new york yeah. Um, so, I mean, if you wanted to make a living, you have, I guess you kind of had to go to, to L.A. to a certain extent.
0: I think you're right. And, and, and now if you want to make a living as an actor in New York and be a Broadway actor, you have to be a television star or a movie star. Right.
1: <laughs> right. You know,
0: I mean, back then, you know, you, you look at you look at the kinds of actors that came up in in the theater back then and you'd go to a Broadway play and it wouldn't necessarily be all cast with stars, and now it's kind of like you have to you have to be a star in order to get in in a play or to open a play so the flow is it's a different time yeah, yeah the
1: flow has gone backwards we used to get our stars from from theater and now we we put our stars once they're stars into theater um right so so you've got this uh, we're not a visual medium you've got a bunch of great old movie posters behind you um, yeah. uh, which I, I love are there personal connections to these or are these just favorite films?
0: Uh, a couple of personal connections. I mean, I've got a couple, I have my, every actor has to have his, you know, the ego wall. So oh, very have, nice, uh, very nice. I've got, I've got, a, I got a bunch of stuff from, you know, stuff that I've done, but, uh, these are a couple of my mom's, uh, movies, uh, nice. the desperados are in town. Uh, you know, just a, just a B movie, B Western that she did in the fifties. Uh, I've got a couple of those. And then, uh, and then I love, I love, uh, I love film noir. So this oh, is a yeah. great, uh, a great uh, uh, Johnny O'Clock with Dick Powell and Evelyn Keyes and Terror on a Train with Glenn Ford. Uh, I nice. just I love that. I love that stuff. So I've got a lot of sort of vintage movie posters all around.
1: Were there some non-stars? Were there some working character actors you would you grew up watching? You're like, oh, that's interesting. Look, look at what that guy's doing. You know, so because I mean, everyone knows sights you know, the, the huge names, or were there some, some lesser, you're a big film noir guy. So I'm assuming like you look at somebody like Elisha cook jr. And you're like, Oh, Hey, Elijah cook is-
0: or Ralph Meeker, oh, uh, Ralph Meeker. you yeah. know, you know, just uh, amazing guys that, you know, I always, I always loved looking at the, the end credits of a movie and seeing if I recognized the name that later became, you know, I mean, you look at, I was watching something the other night uh, and James Whitmore, was, um, you know, James Whitmore was in, uh, I think it was battleground or something. I mean, this is in like, this is in the late forties. Um, and James Whitmore was one of a massive cast. And then obviously he came, he went on to become one of the great, you know, great character actors. I love seeing. A lot of people will recognize him from, uh, Shawshank Redemption, uh, where he's the old man who gets
1: paroled and really doesn't know what to do with himself. Right.
0: Yeah. The guys that I grew up admiring, uh, you know, the Gene Hackmans, the Robert Duvall's, um, you know, guys like that. You know, those those were the guys that I aspired to be because, uh, you know, Chris Cooper, um, actors that were just, you know, like the utility guys, you know, the guys that were just like you could plug them into anything and you knew that they would make they would make the scene better they would make the film better. Um, I mean, you look at the cast of something like all the president's men, you know, with Jack Warden and Martin Balsam and John McMartin and Jason Robards and yeah, and Jason Robards. And, you know, and to me, those were the guys that I kept seeing over and over again in films that I loved as a kid. And I thought, oh, maybe there's something to that. Maybe there's something to being the character guy, the utility guy. You know, you had your stars. You had your great movie stars, you know, you had your Al Pacino's and your Robert Redford's who were terrific at playing, you know, I mean, Robert Redford was, nobody was better at playing Robert Redford than Robert Redford. Sure, um, he really,
1: he carved out a really nice Robert Redford niche for himself, didn't he? He
0: did. I mean, he, but it was, and he was a wonderful actor, a really facile actor. Paul Newman, on the other hand, to me, was like a movie star who became a character actor as he got older. He was always, you know, he was always Paul Newman, but as he got older, he played these characters. I mean, one of the things you, I know you—you know—one of the things you wanted to talk about is you know favorite character actors. And to me, there's always this sort of blurred line between what is it, what's a character actor, and what's you know, and what's what's not. I mean, we're all character actors because we play characters. Meryl Streep, to me, is a character actor. It was one that has less to do with with craft than
1: it does with just the business. You know, it's not yeah. necessarily it's just, you know, where we have landed on in our, our, our various careers. Um, the name of the podcast, Household Faces, is, I think, becoming more and more self-explanatory. It's that sense of, of people yeah. who you don't know this name, but you absolutely know this guy. You absolutely yeah. know who this guy is. Um, and yeah. you can rattle off more credits than he can, you know. Um, but, yeah, it's that's exactly the idea. When, when you look at a movie like All the President's Men – Um, the early seventies are terrific for, for films like this.
0: The early seventies or even, I mean, 12 angry men, Mm. uh, you know, the ultimate, you look at those guys in that film, but I mean, listen, I mean, we know, you know, the seventies, there's no better era for film. And, and I think the films of the seventies put the character actors, uh, the New York character actors, you look at everybody that was in like dog day. I mean, talk about a perfectly cast movie, you know, Charlie Durning, um, those are, those are the guys that, you know, that you, those are the guys that you were drawn to, you know? So it's those, it's those guys that, that filled out the scenes that made them, that made them better. Chris Sarandon you know? in, uh, in Chris Dog Sarandon. Day, phenomenal, Beautiful brave performance.
1: performance for 1973 yeah. or whenever that is. What yeah. I love is that you, you cite all the president's men, which is a film that is mostly pricks in suits.
0: Yeah. Yeah,
1: I love that. That's I love true. that. I feel like true. I feel like we've come full circle and I want to thank you for your time, Spencer Garrett. <laughs>
0: thank you, John. This
1: is a pleasure. I could, I could go on and on about this. I oh God, you're the perfect guest, man. You're the absolute
0: perfect guest. Thank you, brother. This is so good.
1: And that is an episode wrap on Spencer Garrett. You can follow Spencer on Instagram at spencergarrett1 and on Twitter he's at @1spencergarrett. Way to make it easy for us, Spence. Forever. Dog.